0: It's Tuesday, December 29th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. To get back to work, companies are trying to secure tests for their workers. Amazon, for example, is looking for ways to test employees regularly, including building its own testing lab. But there's a big question about the best way to proceed. Will employers need more diagnostic tests, or will it be better for antibody tests? And now the vaccines are rolling out? Will those be required to even come back to work? There's also questions about cost, supply, and concerns about employee privacy. Sarah Krause, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how employers want to ramp up their own testing capability. Next, vitamin C was having a moment during the pandemic, and sales were surging. But you have to watch out for some offering it up as a coronavirus treatment. The FTC and the FBI were investigating health clinics and wellness centers, for overhyping high-dose IV infusions of vitamin C as ways to prevent or treat COVID-19. Brent Skrotenbor, investigative reporter at USA Today, joins us for more. Finally, many are worried about what some are calling the twindemic, which is continuing to fight the coronavirus pandemic while also getting through the flu season. The flu and COVID-19 share several common symptoms, and it's important to know how to differentiate the two viruses. Karina Zayet, reporter at USA Today, joins us for How to Tell the Difference. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: Is it most valuable to regularly test people for the coronavirus itself? Or is it better to conduct a broad antibody test to see who has had it and may be immune to it? But even what immunity is in the context of this virus is unclear. So once you have it, does that to say you can't get it again? If you are immune to it, how long does that immunity last?
0: Joining us now is Sarah Krause, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Everybody on top of mind for everybody right now is how do we get back? How do we get the economy going again? And how do we get back to work? Uh, Companies are looking to get a bunch of tests for their workers. This has long been part of the conversation. We need to ramp up all the testing, but companies are looking to get their own tests, test their own workers, maybe in-house, but that also poses a lot of problems. Up front right now, we hear a lot about Amazon and General Motors. They're looking for ways to test their employees they're looking for methods to test them regularly but like i said there's just a lot of problems with ramping up privacy liability concerns as well sarah tell us a little bit about this
1: so as companies try to figure out when and how to bring workers back to the office or back to the workplace they want to make testing part of it but it's really unclear how to best go about it, whether it's most valuable to do regular diagnostic tests, whether an antibody test is the best way forward. So there's a lot of questions about how best to proceed that companies are grappling with and how to act on it once they know that about their workforce.
0: Really, it's all going to be dependent on the company, too, and their resources. You know, I mentioned Amazon. They're looking to build their own testing lab. What does that look like? Is that a centralized lab? Are they going to do a lot of mini labs in regional centers? That's a lot of logistical challenges going into it.
1: There's a lot of costs. There's a lot of logistical challenges. You know, Amazon is obviously a uniquely large and well-resourced company with the ability to begin now gathering the equipment it needs to build a COVID-19 testing lab for its employees. I think some of the medical advisors that I talked to said you might expect to see primary care facilities or on-site health clinics that companies once had for workers become testing facilities. But again, like the big overarching problem here is getting access to the test in the first place. And so we and others have reported that there have been shortages of swabs, shortages of the actual equipment needed to conduct the test once it's in the lab. So as of now, there are supply issues that are hindering tests, even for basic frontline police, fire, municipal employees, healthcare workers. So overcoming that is a pretty important step towards the broader public having wide access to testing, let alone individual employers.
0: And what the hierarchy is gonna look like for that, obviously healthcare workers and as you mentioned, some of these other frontline first responders need these tests first and they need to be able to ramp their portions of it first so after that then does it become a bidding war for these types of materials needed i mean there's a lot of questions that go into it but it is very much part of the conversation i think some polls or some uh companies that you guys have been talking to at the wall street journal there's over a quarter of the companies are looking for some type of testing for their employees
1: and there's disagreement among executives, even at large employers, to is it most valuable to regularly test people for the coronavirus itself, or is it better to conduct a broad antibody test to see who has had it and may be immune to it? But even what immunity is in the context of this virus is unclear. So once you have it, does that to say you can't get it again? If you are immune to it, how long does that immunity last? So there's a lot of unknowns about the coronavirus itself that make making a game plan about this really complicated. Complicated, even more so than the logistics we've already talked about right. with actually sourcing the test. Let's talk a little bit about how
0: some of this might look in practice. As you mentioned, some of these bigger companies can repurpose parts of their company so they can do testing. But to do that testing, we've all seen those videos of the swab that goes way in the back of the throat. I mean, sometimes the person coughs because it tickles them the wrong way. So the person that is going to be doing this testing will have to be in full-on gear. They'll have to be a trained professional, obviously, but also full-on PPE, personal protective equipment. And that's kind of at a shortage too sometimes. So another challenge there.
1: You know, in the past, there's been a pretty clear line in terms of what an employer can ask you or know about you from a health perspective. You can't necessarily ask about pre-existing conditions or genetic framework or, or pre-existing medical conditions. And with this virus, that is something that dictates how high risk you are or are not in some cases. So it starts to open up these really difficult conversations about employer versus employee privacy and what your coworkers want to be assured of before they feel comfortable coming back to work.
0: In many ways, it's going to be a fundamental shift for a lot of companies and the way they operate going forward. And the privacy concern has always been particularly interesting to me, just for the way you said, you know, if there's an outbreak in the office, people want to know who it is because they want to know if they've been in contact with that person. But at the same time, we have to protect their privacy and their health data. So these are all very tricky situations to navigate around.
1: And it's a very emotional time for people too, right? People are worried about their family and friends. And equally, some people are married to frontline workers who they all go home together at the end of the day. And that is something that has always been the case, that your workforce may be married to someone in a different profession that is higher risk than yours. And that becomes relevant in this conversation. But it's not something that an employer would typically have had a right to ask you about or factor into determining whether and when you can return to the office.
0: Sarah Krause, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks
2: for having me. There's fear out there about this invisible disease that nobody knows how to cure, prevent right now. And so people are kind of grasping at things that they think they know or think could help. And probably very predictably we're seeing businesses that are going to try to push the envelope. Joining
0: us now is Brent Scrotenbohr, investigative reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Brent. Thank
2: you. Appreciate it.
0: Vitamin C seems to be having a moment during the coronavirus pandemic. Sales of vitamin C supplements have gone up to about $209 million in the first half of 2020. That's up 76% compared to the same period last year. I know just anecdotally, For myself, as soon as all the hoarding was going on and people were doing all this panic buying, my wife right away bought up a bunch of vitamin C stuff too. She said, it's good for you. But there's actually a lot of instances where people are selling vitamin C by IV. They're making these false claims that it can help treat COVID-19. The FTC has had to get involved with shutting down some of these people. There was even an FBI raid on somebody who was doing these vitamin C by IV treatments. Brent, tell us a little bit about that.
2: It's interesting. It's sort of taken almost like a, know, like a cult status. It almost seems like a religion. Vitamin C has almost become a religion, and people really want to believe. It does this and that in this scary time of pandemic. And we should say right off the top, I mean, vitamin C is very good for you. Everybody needs it. It's an essential nutrient it does help your immunity it's found in fruits and vegetables and if you eat a lot of fruits and vegetables and you're, you're going to probably have a pretty good immune system and good overall health so let's just make this clear vitamin c is good okay i mean there's right. nothing really bad about it you can take a lot of it and and probably the worst that's going to happen is you don't need all that you that you think you do that you might be overtaking it but it, that you might just come out of your body in natural ways and not really have any effect. And so it's important just to establish that. But what the pandemic has done is that there's a, there's fear out there about this visible disease that nobody knows how to cure, prevent right now. And so people are kind of grasping at things that they think they know or think could help. And probably very predictably, we're seeing businesses that are going to try to push the envelope and try to say that, that mainlining vitamin C into your veins is going to prevent or cure COVID-19. And there, there's just no evidence to support that. And, and so we've seen like, the federal government crack down on it because you know, like the Federal Trade Commission has been investigating different businesses that, and what they say and how they advertise. They regulate against deceptive business practices and deceptive advertising. And they found dozens of businesses like wellness clinics that say that if you inject this into your vein through an IV, you are going to prevent yourself from getting COVID, et cetera. FBI, as you mentioned, they uh, raided a doctor's office uh, near Detroit in April where the, this doctor was very avid about this treatment. He was injecting this into their veins and saying it helped with COVID, and he was also billing Medicare for it.
0: You write about how there's a history of misunderstanding with vitamin C. And as you mentioned, you know, I'm not taken away from it. As you mentioned at the top, it, it is good for you. But where did it go where it became got this cult status?
2: That probably can be traced back to 1970 when a guy, a scientist named Linus Pauling, published a book called Vitamin C and the Common Cold. And he basically theorized that you take higher doses of it, it's going to give you better defenses. And... That has been the subject of debate. Some say that's been discredited. Some say, well, it's arguable that it it didn't get enough testing. The tests about it weren't that good and that there have been studies that have shown that while it can't prevent the common cold, which there is no cure for the common cold, there are some indications that and evidence that it could reduce the severity of a cold or or the duration of it. And just in the general sense that because you need vitamin C as a general essential nutrient, it's going to give you better immunity in general. It's just as far as making specific claims about it, about helping against this condition or disease is where it gets a little bit dicier. There, there is actually a Linus Pauling Institute at, at Oregon State University that, that's involved in studying exactly how vitamins can and can't help. And, and one of the guys there told me that, There just hasn't been enough rigorous study to know exactly how much of a benefit it provides for certain things. And that's where, you know, we get into the stuff that was theorized back in the seventies is, you know, I don't think it's been totally disproven, but it just needs a lot more rigorous study to know exactly what it's doing.
0: Yeah. There's even clinical trials involving COVID-19 and vitamin C, but those could take years before reaching any conclusion, but people are still thinking it works. There was a March 2020 survey, they said 21% of people in the US thought that taking vitamin C probably or definitely prevented COVID 19 infection. So the thought is out there, but you just got to know that vitamin C is not an approved treatment for COVID 19 or a preventative for COVID 19.
2: One of these things that's taken on a lot more popularity in recent years and especially now during the pandemic is these IV treatments. Now you can you can find a lot of these in a lot of cities, their wellness centers or naturopathic doctors that are, are selling this about $200 per treatment where they put it into your veins and you, you sit there and you get this big high dose injections. and they generally sell that under the claim that it boosts overall immunity and, and good health. That again, as I'm told, there's not really any evidence that having that big of a dose is necessary any more than just eating regular fruits and vegetables in a a normal good diet. It is generally safe. I mean, I've not heard any bad complications or people get this or any real horror stories about a vitamin C injection but I guess the biggest risk then would be you're spending $200 on something you might not really need much more than having a lot of broccoli or strawberries in your diet.
0: Right. You have to beware of the hype. Brent Scrotenbohr, investigative reporter at USA Today, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you. Appreciate
3: it. Having a loss of taste and smell, this is very characteristic of COVID-19 and uh, it uh, basically never happens uh, with flu. And also, uh, shortness of breath is also more characteristic of COVID 19. Joining us now is Karina
0: Zayet, reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Karina.
3: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: We're getting into flu season, uh, end of October. It goes really all throughout January, early February. And a lot of people are concerned about what they call the twin you know, the possibility that the flu and coronavirus are going to be swirling around together and that a lot of people are really going to get sick. So we wanted to talk a little bit about how to tell the difference between the flu and COVID-19. There's a lot of common symptoms that both share. So we wanted to look a little bit into that. So Karina, start us off. Tell us how they're both transmitted because they're basically kind of happens the same way.
3: That's true. Oscar, they're both transmitted the same way, basically uh, through respiratory droplets. So Uh, Whenever a person coughs or sneezes, those respiratory droplets uh, go out and then you can contact uh, the virus by inhaling these droplets or by touching the surface that uh, is contaminated with those droplets. So basically flu viruses, uh, influenza viruses, as well as COVID-19, coronavirus viruses, you can pick them up pretty much the same way.
0: Yeah, And the good thing is that if you're practicing the proper procedures, you know, wearing your mask, washing your hands, the physical distancing, it's going to help limit the spread of both. So make sure to do those things. So let's talk about those symptoms now, because there's a lot of different symptoms that COVID-19 has, but there's a few that are shared, namely the fever, the chills, the shivers, the cough, and then the fatigue. Those are the top three that are usually shared and shortness of breath as well. So let's talk about some of those symptoms.
3: Yeah, sure. And I would like also to say that when you experience any of those symptoms, the first thing to do is to contact your doctor. But then uh, there is kind of way to tell, you know, for example, having a loss of taste and smell. This is very characteristic of COVID-19 and uh, it uh, basically never happens uh, with flu. And also uh, shortness of breath is also more characteristic of COVID-19. But then runny nose, congestion is something more common for flu.
0: And the cough, if you have a COVID, it's usually more of a dry cough. So, that you know, it's it's just important to kind of identify the symptoms and how they're coming in. So, as you mentioned, contact your doctor, but at least you know kind of which way you're going. How long it takes for these symptoms to appear is interesting, too. We know that COVID has this, you know, 2 to 14-day time period, but the flu comes and goes a lot faster.
3: So, uh, usually a person will experience uh, symptoms uh, within the first days of the infection. And so, even though there is like a wild range of uh, disease, basically, patients usually recover around 10th to 12th day, they start feeling better. But with COVID 19, as you said, you can develop symptoms as late as two weeks after being infected. And that's what is dangerous about COVID 19.
0: Now, let's talk a little bit about the big concerns that public health experts have and really is that you know hospitalizations could go up you know a lot of people might come down with covid-19 a lot of people might come down with the flu they're going to be need to be treated and they think that it might overwhelm the healthcare system and on top of that they do think that it is possible to come down with both at the same time which could be especially burdensome
3: Yeah, that's true. And there were actually studies that actually talking about people having both at the same time. So there are recorded cases where people did have both. But yeah, you're right that experts are afraid that we'll have this COVID-19 wave and then we'll have uh, on top of that flu wave and that can overwhelm the health system. So even though for uh, flu, uh, hospitalization rate is uh, uh, much smaller so it's usually 69 hospitalizations for 100,000 people for well, COVID-19 is 175 people and actually recently it, that number got higher up but if we look just at the last season from October till April we see that there were approximately from 400,000 to 700,000 hospitalizations and they were related to flu alone so imagine uh, COVID-19 on top of that and that can really stress the healthcare system.
0: A lot of people think that, uh, you know, we're maybe hitting the peak of a first wave of COVID-19 infections, depending on where you're at. You know, some of the other regions in the country might be getting like the beginning of a second wave or something. So there's a lot yet to go through with all of this. And as I mentioned, people are just concerned that both of these viruses swirling around could overwhelm the system. So we'll have to get through it. It's important to know the differentiators so you know how to go about treatment and all. But Either way, if you're getting sick, I think everybody's kind of learning this now. If you're getting sick, stay home, contact your doctor, get better. So hopefully we'll all get through it just fine. Karina Zayets, reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you, Oscar.
0: That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us stories that you're interested. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Vixen Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.